turn it off and back on again. Unplug it. I, I don't. I'm unclear whether she can hear our advice. She can't. I, no, she can't. That, that's why we're being so helpful. <laughs> I'm just saying stuff, man. This. Don't wait for users to report problems. Raygun gives you complete visibility on errors, crashes, and performance problems affecting your end users. You can replicate issues in seconds rather than digging through log files and having to rely on users to report errors or crashes. Raygun gives you a window into how users are really experiencing your software applications. It has full support for JavaScript and all other major languages and platforms. It takes less than 10 minutes to set up and you can get a free 14-day trial by going to raygun.com and signing up today. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have Amy Knight. Hello from Nashville. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest. That's Nick DeSabato. Nick, do you want to say hi? Hey there. How's it going? Happy to be here. Now, uh, you haven't been on this show before. You've been on the Freelancer Show a couple of times. Um, mm-hmm, that's right. I, I'm not even on that show anymore. Uh, do you want to <laughs> give us a brief introduction, let people know who you are? Yeah, so I run Draft, which is an interaction design consultancy. In the past five or so years, and we've been in business that has changed in definition a little bit. Uh, mostly, I do kind of what I call research-driven A/B tests for predominantly e-commerce and SaaS businesses. Mm, nice. Yeah, so we're going to talk business on a programming podcast. How terrible is that? And you got a designer to do it. This is going to be good. <laughs> You're going to break us anyway. Um... Yeah, so I think this is an interesting topic. You you emailed me and asked if we could do it, and I was like, you know what? Um, this is something that we sometimes have to deal with with our marketing groups and things like that, and we're often the people who have to implement it, even though we don't necessarily know what, what the company's looking for, which I think yeah. is a mistake a lot of times when they don't tell us what they want. But I agree with that. <laughs> anyway, um, could you just give us kind of a, a quick preview on A-B testing and what it is and, and generally, you know, what the uses are for it? Yeah, so A-B testing fundamentally, you're measuring the, the economic impact of a change uh, or the business impact of a change. So you're giving, say you have a website, you have the original version of a website and you want to test a certain change to it. You want to change the copy, you want to change a call to action, you might want to change pricing, whatever you do. Um, and you give 50% of the traffic to the original and the change and measure success, be it signups, be it uh, revenue, be it ARPU, whatever have you, and you determine ARPU? which one wins. Average revenue per, per user, sorry. Okay. Um, and uh, and you determine which one wins and you go with the winner and then you keep doing that into perpetuity and it hopefully makes the business a lot of money and helps meet your customers' needs a little bit more effectively. That's the theory, right? But in practice, there's a lot of like operational and logistic things. And for me personally, the big thing that I do is I answer the question, what should we be testing? Mm-hmm. And so I solve that with design research. But I also help implementation a lot, which is the other big question. Like, how do we actually roll out two variations that have two different pricings to our customers? And is that okay? Um, And a lot of the time I sit there writing JavaScript or dealing with an A-B testing framework that uses a lot of JavaScript to, you know, inject its changes for Mm -hmm. half of the customers and track people using, guess what, JavaScript. Uh, So there's a lot of um, kind of interesting overlap, which is why we're having this conversation from a not just programmatic standpoint, but also from a like operational what gets handed off standpoint, which I think was what you were alluding to a little bit earlier. Yep. 
So for for us uh, JavaScript developers, or uh, you know, as we say, us chickens, um, you know, whatever. I mean, what what do we need to know about A/B testing? You know, they're they're trying to decide. You know, we're going to make this change or that change, and we're going to measure the outcome. But what does that mean for us when they come to us and say, you know, what this is the change we want made, and this is the test we want to run? Like, how does that work for for us? So there's uh, before you even start testing, you want to figure out what. A-B testing framework to be using, mm-hmm. right? And that can be something that's either third-party. Uh, the two big ones right now are Visual Website Optimizer and Optimizely. Uh, Google has gotten into the game with a framework called Google Optimize uh, pretty recently. Uh, and they're still comparatively unproven, but they're out there and it's free. Mm-hmm. Uh, or if you're you know, very, very JavaScripty, and you run a React app or a single page app of some sort, then you probably want like a actual built-in in-house A-B testing framework. And there are tons out there that um, you can get off of GitHub that are just plugins or uh, like extensions to React or uh, to Angular that uh, allow you to run A-B tests and maybe feed data back to, say, Mixpanel or Google Analytics. Um, so you have to make that decision, which one to be going with. Um, so from a you know JavaScripty standpoint, it's not too dissimilar from what stack am I using? What framework am I going with? Um, mm-hmm. And you can make that, you can change that later, but it's a pretty significant load-bearing decision. You're keeping all your test knowledge in there. Um, you might be paying into an annual plan or something like that. Um, then the second thing you're going to be thinking about is actually putting together uh, new variations, right? So if you're making changes on your end, you're using either the framework to create those changes. So both VWO and Optimizely have basically WYSIWYG frameworks where you can click on an element or you're making a separate set of pages, a separate funnel. Um, It really depends on the kind of site that you're putting together and and what you're using there uh, to create new variations that are slightly different or radically different. Um, And you're usually, in this case, working with a designer to try and build out solutions. So you're doing that, but in the service of testing, so you're adding on a little bit more technical, um, uh, a little bit more technical weight to the issue, right? There's a little bit Mm -hmm. more effort that needs to actually take place. Interesting. Now, you mentioned all of these different tools as far as uh, the different ways you can go. Does it it matter, like, which tool you use is... Is one going to be way better than the other? or um, Fundamentally, no. It's kind of a... VWO and Optimizely are kind of in like a Canon Nikon feature shootout at this point where they're mm-hmm. materially very similar frameworks and they're doing very similar things. Uh, what you want is a framework that works well with your given stack, right? So if the big fundamental difference is the one I already mentioned where if you're running like a single page application, VWO and Optimizely both work by sideloading a relatively old version of jQuery and then using that to dom parse your website and make changes accordingly. If that any part of that sentence sounds like you're allergic to it, you're probably <laughs> going to want to go... <laughs> Sorry. Right? Yes. You Why want you it? want you want to side load this ugly old crufty version of jQuery on my site and one point like, like why why specifically an older version? I mean they do still update jQuery. They do still update jQuery. It's because I think the reasoning, and I'm not I don't work at VWO, but my suspicion is because that's just what they've been using for four or five years and they're scared of breaking all of their customers' websites. 
What I would oh, like to that's see. so sad. It is so sad. sad. <laughs> what I would like to see is all new tests sideload the version of jQuery or they give me like snippet version two. Like you get, you know, you upgrade the Stripe API, something like that. Um, there is no such thing as that I know of for VWO or now you can. The nice thing about the sideloading jQuery issue, if again, this is horrifying to you, you there is a Boolean flag that turns off jQuery. I have seen that work usually. Um, but you want to be <laughs> test, right? <laughs> you want to be testing that and you like not AB testing it, but actually just like get the one month trial, do the most boring, hello worldy type headline test imaginable and make sure nothing breaks horribly. And if it doesn't, you can probably get away with it. Um, this is recommended because it's way easier to do this than build out a home world framework and go all in on something that's basically just a GitHub widget. You don't know how long it's been developed for or whether it's going to be developed into the future. Um, I think there's a, a bit of a nervousness around that. Um, that said, it's probably far more likely to work into the future for you. So um, operationally, that's the big thing that I would be thinking about in this situation. Gotcha. So you go pick your framework, you plug it in, you tell mm -hmm. it, okay, change up my headline. It works. It's all happy. Now what? Now how how do we how do we do the job so that the company can make more money and give us all fat raises? Um, well, you have presumably kicked off a test by that point. So you've, you know, mm -hmm. hit launched on something, you've made a change, uh, and you've rolled it out to people. What I personally do a day later, I check in on the test to make sure all the goals are firing correctly. So right. are we tracking conversions properly? Are we tracking revenue properly? Um, that is not necessarily guaranteed. You put the VWO or optimizely tracking snippet on the thank you page, and then you roll out some additional code to track revenue. So specifically how much money somebody paid you, um, if there's maybe a lifetime value you can ascribe to a customer for your SaaS business or uh, the specific order value if you're an e-commerce provider, those are, uh, those are pretty easy, right? But ultimately, you have to just sit there and wait for the test to gather enough traffic. And so that I can provide a couple of links to you guys in the show notes where I write a little bit about how to get uh, to statistically significant traffic, how to know that, how to calculate sample size before you run a test. Um, and... It's essentially a factor of your existing conversion rate and how much of a lift you want to potentially measure on the test. So you're saying, this is going to potentially bump revenue by 5%. Um, and that is effectively work. That's what that is. Uh, and then once you get to the minimum sample size, the minimum amount of traffic for this test, you go back in and you look at what the goals are and you see if anything won. Uh, VWO and Optimizely make this very, very, very easy. If you are using like a React-based A-B testing framework that's in-house and pushing to Mixpanel, you're probably going to have to do a little bit more math uh, to calculate out whether or not there was a statistically conclusive lift in traffic. Mm -hmm. um, I you do that using a uh, very plain-looking calculator that has a lot of Times New Roman uh, that an A-B testing statistics nerd made like six years ago and never changed because he never needed to because statistics don't really change over time. Um, I've been plugging my numbers into that. We'll throw that in the show notes as well. Um, that's essentially procedurally what happens. And if you find a winner, you say, okay, this had, you know, we bumped conversions by, say, 10% at 95% confidence. Um, that looks like a really big winner. 
well, then operationally, you need to find a way to roll that change out to everybody. Uh, if you are running an A-B testing framework like VWO or Optimizely, you would pause the test, take a look at what changes were made, and um, make those edits actually in line on your web page and roll it out to production. If you're doing um, an in-house framework, there might actually be uh, just a Boolean that actually does that for you, where you just say, this one, now it's automatically going out to everyone. Um, that's one of the fairly significant benefits of, of running your own home-rolled framework is that mm -hmm. you're able to just say, okay, this one, here you go, and then it maybe pings you in Slack and says, hey, this one, now you can run a new test. Um, the goal is to maximize the amount of time that an active test is running because time is money effectively, and if you just have dead time, it's not actually helping the business. So you want to have, while you're putting together this test, uh, and while you have this test together and it's running, you want to put together the next test. So uh, I always work on researching what to be testing next, trying to prototype it, get something together so that I can hit off on the first test and on on the next test if it was turned out to be inconclusive and I didn't have to roll it out to everybody. Does that make sense from an operational standpoint? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, th there's kind of a lot there. There are a lot of steps, but I mean, for the, for the most part, yeah. You know, you're... Yeah. Yeah, you're you're setting up your experiments and you're watching them and making sure that you're tracking what you need to track, and then yeah, you know you you want to get enough traffic to make sure that you're covering all the cases or you know that that it's a conclusive outcome, right? Yeah, yeah. So when you're running an A/B test, um, basically you can say, okay, well, this many people converted on A, the control, and mm -hmm. this many people converted on B, the variant. And we also had this many people coming in to A and to B. So you essentially have, that's essentially your conversion rate. You divide the first by the second, and you end up with a conversion rate. Those are going to be different. Are they different enough that we should go with the new design or stay with the original right. design? Fundamentally, the question is, is it worth pressing the button and rolling this out to everybody? Mm -hmm. And it, Ultimately, doesn't matter if you increase sales by 2% or by 30%. If you end up with something that is clearly statistically a winner, you're going to want to give it to everyone. Right, absolutely. What if it's close? Like, what if your variant is, you know, within a few percentage points of the original? Yeah, so that's um, usually the plurality of A-B tests end up like that. And that is uh, what's called an inconclusive or a null result, where you just say, I don't know. Uh, it could not actually, this is a great question, it could not actually help or hurt the, um, the design. And in that case, um, sometimes <laughs> I do roll it out because it might simplify the layout or it might fulfill a business goal a little mm -hmm. bit better. Um, sometimes I look at the like knock-on effects where like maybe the conversion rate goes up, but customer behavior changes in a way that we might not necessarily want. And so we choose not to roll it out. Um, there might be trade-offs around like the actual metrics that we're putting together. So, um, you know, that's where it kind of gets to be a gray area. And I, you know, take off my statistician hat and put on my consultant hat and ask, well, what do we really want out of this, right? What is the fundamental business goal of it? And are we doing this in a way that is like, you know, being kind to our customers and not trying to manipulate them? Um, those are, you know, questions that I, that I ask pretty much daily in my job, so... So what, one other thing that I see is that uh, in a lot of these cases, you're usually 
um, as a developer working with a designer and a marketing person, um, where should the responsibilities break down between the different people involved? I I come in with a design background and use research to try and come up with test ideas. That said, anybody can come up with test ideas. So I just keep a huge board on Trello that um, solicits ideas from anyone, tries to say, okay, well, this came from a certain place. Maybe it came from a customer support inquiry. Maybe it came mm-hmm. from a hunch that you had. Try and you know follow that hunch and see if it you know there's anything to it and if it's easy to build out. Um, and we do what we can to prioritize that. Uh, at that point, I usually work directly with a developer. Uh, so I might be you know taking in information from the C level or from the business people or from the sales people and finding a way to synthesize it into an actual design decision. And then I throw it over the wall. I'll admit, I don't really like that setup very much because it's very separate. I feel like there is there's an ideal scenario, which I don't see happening very often, where JavaScript people understand CRO and get resourced in for it and are able to be at the table thinking about these problems from day one. They're able to have... Uh, technical pushback on new prototypes. They're able to talk about what tests are running. They might even be able to implement those tests and help out a little bit on the analysis of those tests. And uh, one of the things that I see like Pep Laja and Joanna Weeb talking about who are other big people in the like conversion rate space that, that I work in and they're very seasoned A-B testers. They talk about how the number one skill that A-B testers end up get, learning on the job is JavaScript. It's crazy <laughs> Right? It's crazy to think about. If you know JavaScript, it's probably a lot easier for you to learn the like operational logistics of A-B testing and then backfill your skills to that. Because I hear about CRO people taking years to train up, like multiple years. And for me, I'm, I don't think I'm the world's greatest JavaScript developer, as you can probably tell from some of the language that I've been using on this podcast. Um, but I, you know, I've had to learn it because it's a fundamental component of the whole process of measurement and, um, and synthesis and learning that ends up coming from understanding customer behavior. Um, you all already have a leg up on that if you're a JavaScript developer and you're listening to this, which I think is tremendously powerful. Yay, we're halfway there. So I'm trying to think through, you know, the different scenarios, right? Because, you know, some of us may work in a company that's fairly large. And so, you know, they're, they're going to come to us and they're going to explain what they want. And we're just going to code it in, right? We'll have yeah. to have a fundamental understanding of what they're doing, but we don't have to deeply understand all of the ins and outs of optimizing for conversion rate. But then you also have people who work at a small company where, you know, they may wind up doing both because you know, of the two, yeah, JavaScript is tougher for the marketing person to learn than the other way around. And then the last group is the the kind of the coder entrepreneur who yeah. is building their own SaaS app or something and they're, they're trying to get this all together and to work. I'm wondering, you know, at what point do you start worrying about this versus like adding features or, you know, <laughs> things like that, right? What The things that people are actually going to pay you for as opposed to getting more people to pay you for it. Yeah, I wish I had a clear cut answer to that question because it's a vast gray area between, oh, my God, you should have been doing this six weeks ago and really you shouldn't be doing this. Right. 
Um, now, all of the research that I do and all of the like one-off improvements that I do, all the optimization, that you can do at any point, right? Building out new features, uh, compressing your images, making it easier for people to give you money, reducing the mm -hmm. number of form fields in your checkout form. Dumb, obvious stuff like that that you should have been doing from day one. Um, that's easy. I can tell you all of that. Um, but we're here to talk about A-B testing. And so there's kind of... You have to have a traffic minimum, so take a look at that sample size calculator, and it gives you a sense that I'm going to be putting in the show notes, and that should give you a sense of, okay, you know what your conversion rate is, hopefully. You should be attaching that to Google Analytics and have a fair sense of it. Um, and then understand whether or not it's like gobsmackingly obvious. If you can call an A-B test in three days, you should probably be A-B testing. If you don't have the resources for it, well, now is a great opportunity to, like, spend some of your educational time and budget and energy learning about A-B testing and understanding really what it is. Um, but if you are, you know, at the very beginning, there's this awkward position where you both have traffic and not enough resources. Um, and I've seen this happen pretty often where I'll be in like a six or seven person you know, SaaS business or an e-commerce business. E-commerce are especially guilty of this because they're too busy like manufacturing products and physically shipping them to people mm -hmm. and like dealing with a warehouse <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and their Shopify store not breaking to to actually pull this off. Um, that might be an opportunity to say, hire a consultant such as myself or learn a little bit from a separate agency that might be able to take care of this for you and they give you a little bit of the training wheels on it. But ultimately, what ends up happening is you might find that you're able to run an A-B test that runs every month and that's not a whole lot. It's enough time to run an A-B test for, but it's not frequently enough that it actually takes up space in your head and you continue to think intentionally about the next test that you're running and analysis of the existing test, which means you're going to put together a bunch of lousy tests that don't work well. Well-researched tests tend to win better than things that are like, let's change the headline so it's more persuasive. What on earth does that mean? You hear that happening in testing all the time. So I, I think that you're asking the right question, and it's very hard to truly understand that. But the beginning, I would say, is learn more about it. Like, you're not going to get everything that you need to know out of this podcast, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't have enough time for that. Uh, but you can. There are tons and tons of resources through Conversion XL, through my consultancy, through uh, copy hackers that can teach you a lot about how to actually be pulling this off. So if you're in like a large organization, um, like I'm trying to think kind of where I'm at now, do you think this would be more of something that developers would do or is this something more for like a QA department? I would hope that it goes a little bit cross-disciplinary. Like if you, yeah, had that a makes real, sense. if you had a really big organization and you were able to devote a team to this, like an optimization team that had like designers or researchers and developers on it that were able to, and like maybe a project manager that was able to determine what to test next and who to send it out to. If you're in a really big organization, you can get really interesting and do like more, sophistic more sophisticated segmentation and talk to maybe people coming in from individual countries or from certain ad campaigns or... Um, you can go more niche and not just do an A-B test to literally everybody. Um, so my, the most, to answer your question directly, 
the most sophisticated A-B testing operations that I've seen at places like the Amazons and Netflixes of the world, they have entire floors of buildings devoted to optimization. And they have people from all disciplines on those teams. This episode is sponsored by Linode. Linode is offering listeners of this podcast a $20 credit, which is good for four free months at their lowest plan. Their plans start at one gigabyte of RAM for $5 a month. You can get your servers in any of their 10 data centers, and their high memory plans start at 16 gigabytes. Get a server running in under a minute. They do hourly billing with a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services like backups, node balancers, long view, etc., VMs for full control, running Docker containers, encrypted disks, VPNs, etc. You can run a private Git server. They provide native SSD storage, 200 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. They have 24-7 friendly support, even on holidays, and a seven-day money-back guaranteed. So go check them out at linode.com slash JavaScript Jabber. You can keep going, Amy. Looks okay. like you have more questions. Yeah, yeah. So I do have another question. So one of the places, like my very first job as a developer, I thought they did something kind of cool. Um, it was actually neat to, I, th- I think we just like listened to the recording, but um, they hired an outside company and they would actually give, you know, the the application to users and record them using it. And these users would actually like speak through what they were thinking and what they were seeing. And yeah. it, was abs- it, was, it was hilarious to like, <laughs> like just hear how they did things and the stuff that they were reading and like maybe even reading stuff that like just because of the fonts we were using or something like that, like misreading um, like key points on the site that we wanted to bring attention to. So I'm curious how that fits in with all of this. Yeah, so let's get a little bit into what I'm researching because that's kind of what you're talking about. That's one aspect of it. So if you want to go to... Um, what you're basically talking about is effectively a usability test where you ask people to yeah. uh, vocalize their internal monologue as they complete a task, usually buying a thing or signing up for your service, right? Yeah, and also like with this kind of thing too, I mean, it does kind of seem hard to scale because it's a very like individual experience, so. Yeah, yeah, so... um Yeah, so that's one aspect of what I'm doing. Another thing I'm doing is usually running like heat and scroll maps, and I'm seeing where people are actually interacting with a page. That's pretty easy and cheap to do. Um, I'm also actually running behavior recordings where I can see their their mouse cursor or even like their their tap targets as they're scrolling across a page on mobile, something like that. Um, Sometimes I even go so far as to survey people and then kind of secretly use it as a pre-qualifier for getting them on the phone and asking them a bunch of non-leading questions and giving them an Amazon gift card at the end or free month of our service or free order or whatever it is. Um, So I'm doing a lot of things that are essentially trying to listen to what users say they want and what users actually end up doing in practice and end up thinking. And that all of that that I just mentioned uh, goes into coming up with new A-B tests. Uh, It also goes into confirming ideas that might come from other people about whether or not an A-B test is like something that we should be prioritizing very strongly. That's essentially the like the rough sketch of what it is that that I do in my research process. Um, we can go deep on any of those topics that probably fill out the rest of the time. But yeah, that's something that I would consider a core part of an optimization practice. One thing that I'm wondering about here, and, and I'm going to change the subject just a little bit, is um, 
just with the implementation, you mentioned that you can install these scripts from these different systems, and then you know they'll use some um, old version of jQuery to change the DOM or to check out the DOM at the very least. Um, but I've also seen systems where essentially, and you mentioned this as well, it's kind of built into the framework. It's part of React or Rails or uh, Express or something like that. And essentially when it builds the template, it makes the change there. And then yeah. from there, it tracks it back, you said, to Mixpanel or something like that. I guess the question is, is just do do these, A, do the jQuery solutions just not work well with things like React or Angular or Vue? And the other question I have related to that is, um, it sounds like a whole lot more work to set up. So how much more expertise do you need for that versus like dropping a script on the page and saying, vary the DOM here? Yeah. Um, the problem is usually in the order of by which a page is edited, right? Um, that This is my understanding of it. So usually it will assemble like a single page application and mm -hmm. then VWO will come in and try and start making changes after the fact. And it doesn't know what order to go in. Right. So it might be like a asynchronous snippet. Um, so VWO has both asynchronous and synchronous snippets. So it may take uh, unreasonably long time for the page to load, which could harm conversion more than anything. Mm -hmm. um, or it would actually break the page or be unable to actually fire the test. I've seen that happen pretty frequently. So that's that's why you see so many like React-based A-B testing frameworks that ping mix panel and let you do the statistical analysis separately. Is I guess the thing that I'm worried about with doing it myself is that I could make some mistake that compromises the outcome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so just as an example, you know, let's say that I put something in and I... I have it varying, you know, some some text or, you know, varying the layout some. And right. um, I put, you know, I don't have it measured correctly or, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it's not making the change in the right way at the right time. And so right. I, I have to make sure that it's all doing what I expect it to do. And sometimes those scenarios are a little bit tricky to, to get tested and make sure that the variation is exactly what we want it to be. Yeah, yeah, that's, I think you're talking uh, about kind of just operational troubleshooting of A-B tests mm -hmm. because there's not only the difference between a WYSIWYG and an in-house framework, but there's also like problems with goal measurement, right? I was dealing with this with a client recently where they moved, um, they added like a post-purchase upsell to their checkout flow. So when you got out of, when you actually submitted your checkout form and converted, strictly speaking, you like, started taking money, there was another thing that said, if you want to add this accessory to your order, click here, otherwise click here to get to your receipt. And that works really, really well. It increased average order value by like 30% for the business. So it was a huge, huge win for us, right? But then the URL changed, the URL became dynamic, and we didn't have a way to calculate revenue tracking effectively. So I had to sit down with their dev team and be like, okay, well, how do we, it's not a matter of like figuring out where to put in the VWO snippet. That's easy. What, what I have to figure out is the regex for the URL you're generating and put that in to the goal. And so I sat there, I don't wish this on my enemies, trying to create a sensible <laughs> regex that would successfully capture 100% of conversions 
from this post-purchase upsell application they had been installing on Shopify. We got it working, I think. You know, <laughs> um, it's generating a lot of really good data. It doesn't seem to be like statistically beneath what we've been getting on Google Analytics, where that is reporting accurately. Um, and that's just something you have to be vigilant about, right? So another thing that happens here is, is good communication. If somebody's changing the checkout page on the funnel, that needs to be captured in the A-B test. If you want to make a change to a test page as a test is running, you probably, unless it's a very, very small, insignificant bug, um, you would probably have to wait until the test finishes. Or I would have to stop the test, flush the data, and restart the test from day zero. Because you're not going to have a scientifically accurate finding when the test page changes. So there's got to be a conversation between the developers, who are usually the gatekeepers of changes happening on the website, and whomever is responsible for bottom-lining the operations of generating new tests and making sure that they're they're being analyzed correctly. Uh, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So I guess what I'm wondering then is, since there is so much to absorb and digest and, and understand and all the different moving pieces and all the people that are involved and all those other things that we've talked about here, are there good places to get started just understanding this? I mean, I think I think you could listen to this episode, you know, once or twice through and kind of pick up the fundamentals but from there, there's going to be a lot of nuance depending on your situation. Um, and you you want to make sure you're doing this right so that you get good data so that you can use those data to actually level up your your conversions. Mm -hmm. So so yeah, so where do you go from here? Where do you go from sort of an overview of uh, conversion rate optimization and A-B testing to you know, fully understanding how to make these experiments really work and decide yeah. what kinds of things to really test. Um, both VWO and Optimizely have massive knowledge bases and huge installed bases of customers. So that's, you know, those are good places if you need to like actually troubleshoot something. To understand the fundamentals, I usually like my first reflex is to recommend Conversion XL. They are a agency based out of Austin that um, specializes in this sort of stuff and has a lot of really good training. I'm going to be shameless and recommend my five and a half hour video course on the subject. Uh, it's called the AB Testing Manual. I have a whole thing that uh, basically teaches you how to. It's a mindset shift, right? Because it's ultimately, you're still making software and you're still working with each other with the same operational roles. There are still designers and developers and they're still improving a website. But it's um, getting alignment on the goals is like fundamentally the biggest challenge. And that's what I end up doing kind of when I come in as a consultant. Wider Funnel is another good blog that I recommend pretty highly. If you want to know um, specific pitches uh, and like more of the actual like, here's how you research side of things, I do, I recommend Baymerd Institute. Those are, that's for big e-commerce sites and Copy Hackers, which is more for a SaaS. Um, those are the places that I tend to go for this. And they have... Um, they have a lot of introductory stuff. They have a lot of like more crunchy and sophisticated uh, blog posts that go deeper into segmentation and personalization that than I could possibly do in a podcast. And those are pretty much the the first places that I go. Cool. Well, I don't think I have any other questions. Amy, do you have anything else you want to ask about? Nope. Talking <laughs> to my coworker in Slack. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So multitask too much. 
So, so we probably should have done this at the beginning of the show, but you know, one last thing that I think I'll let you kind of do the the pitch on, and that is, you know, why should we, the developers, care? Like, why is this our concern? As a business grows, the people that will be managing you probably are going to be more and more likely to actually embrace this. It's going to be a skill that crosses like disciplines and industries. If you end up running a business and it gets enough customers, you should be thinking about approaching changes to a website in a more rational and deliberate and considered way. And the best way to do that is with A-B testing. So I think it's one of the most important skills that you can learn is how these frameworks are operating and how the space is evolving over time. Because even if you're at a small business right now, that could change in the future. You could start working at a bigger company or four bigger companies and independent. And uh, and they might be operating like this. And more and more people are doing that. Like this field is growing very quickly. So I think it is very important for developers to understand. Awesome. And if people want to learn more about it and they think that you're the guy to teach them, um, how do they find you, say, on Twitter or at a blog or something like that? Uh, my business's website is draft.nu. Uh, the course that I run, the A-B testing manual, is at abtestingmanual.com. That one is pretty easy. Um, you can get a hold of me on either of those websites. Uh, email me anytime. Sign up for my mailing list. Uh, I teach people about this sort of stuff every week. So would love to hear from you. Awesome. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Whenever I have a new idea for an app, one of the first things I do is go find a domain name for it. The company I use and have used for years is Hover.com. Hover.com has a clean and easy to use interface. They don't try to upsell me on a bunch of services I don't want or need, and they provide free who is masking for the domains I register. So if I register a domain that's not directly tied to devchat.tv, people don't need to know that I'm the one that owns it. They also offer domains with all kinds of top-level domains like .codes and .computer, and others like .coffee and .pizza. So when you have your next idea strike, go to hover.com slash JavaScript to get it. Once again, that's hover.com slash JavaScript. Amy, do you have some picks for us? Yep. I am going to go ahead, uh, based on a conversation I just had before we started, I want to pick November again because it's been like two weeks since I picked it. Uh, (laughs) But it is, uh, it's it's the Monday and Tuesday right after Thanksgiving. Um, but if you are, and they just announced all of the speakers as well. So I think it would be a good time. Um, you can't make it as a speaker anymore, but go ahead and, uh, go over to their website, check out all the speakers and book your plane flight or whatever you need to get here, because I think it's going to be a great conference. Uh, and that will be it for me. Awesome. Uh, I'm going to jump in with a couple of picks here. One is... Uh, it's a talk that I heard quite a while ago by Mike Gehard. He's a Ruby developer, but it was a terrific He's talk. He's my mentor. <laughs> Yay. He's <laughs> awesome. Yeah, we were exchanging emails last week about the Ruby Dev Summit that's coming up in a couple weeks. But anyway, he gave a talk, I think it was like in 2009 or 2010. It was when I was a very young developer, and it was called Experiment Driven Development. And he essentially you know, talks through a lot of the concepts that we talked about here. Um, I could only find the slides, but the slides are actually pretty simple and pretty darn good. And he just essentially talks about applying the scientific method or, um, you know, forming a hypothesis, setting up an A-B test, figuring this stuff out and, you know, and then basically validating your theory. And then, you know, you come back around and do it again because ultimately your job as a developer isn't just to write code, but it's to keep the business running. 
And usually mm-hmm. you're working on some of the critical stuff that makes the business run. And so if you can do things that will help make the business more money, help them keep the doors open longer, help them, you know, pay more bonuses or, you know, make investments in the future of the company, then your job longevity increases, but it's also what they're paying you for. So anyway, I really, really loved the talk. And then on a completely different note, and I know some people don't like Bootstrap, but I found a really great admin layout that I'm going to be using on a project that I'm working on. It's called Admin LTE. And um, it, yeah, it's just, it's based on Bootstrap, but it takes a lot of the work out of trying to figure out how to make all of this stuff show up the way that people want it to. So if you're interested in that, I'll put a link to it in the show notes as well. Um, and uh, yeah, those are my picks. Uh, Nick, what are your picks? Uh, well, you might be wondering how to do some of this design research stuff. Uh, one of the easiest things that you can be doing is running heat and scroll maps across every page of your funnel. So one of my picks is a weirdly named website called Hotjar. Uh, I mentioned it a little bit earlier. Uh, it is my favorite for doing behavior recordings, heat maps, scroll maps, and funnel analysis. Uh, I had another pick that is a little smaller, but it is uh, from Baymard Institute, and it basically shows exactly what form elements you need to be putting in for every different uh, possible form field that could be requested. So uh, from a uh, mobile standpoint. So for example, if you're requesting zip code, not postal code, but zip code where it's all numbers, you want it to default to the numeric keypad. If you're entering a name like uh, DeSabato, you want it to not autocomplete to disability. And so you want to have auto suggest turned off. Um, so they have basically, if you're entering a name field, this is what the form code should look like so that it works best on mobile. I use this like multiple times a week in my job and it's so small, but it's just such an easy thing to be dropping in to sites that don't really, uh, optimize for mobile quite so effectively. Awesome. Well, excellent. Thank you guys so much for having me today. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Uh, thank you for coming. And, uh, yeah, hopefully some folks will get with you and say, Hey, we need your help. Um, that be cool. Yeah, we really appreciate just getting experts in here and talking about some of these things that I don't think we think about as often. So, Absolutely. That's true. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up, and we will catch everyone next week. Bye. Thank you. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.